uh, sorry it took me a minute. Um, we almost came up here without my Bible, uh, which, you know, would give you permission to leave, uh, I think. So now, now I have it. I have it right here, okay? Uh, also, I, I, this, I wanted to give a shout out this morning, too, to Peggy, who's not here. I believe she might be in childcare. But all these wonderful Christmas decorations are her and Dawn is her, her muscle, right, uh, for different things. But this is her kind of stuff. And so i uh, just really thankful uh, for Peggy and her creative uh, artistry in decorating our church. All right. Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Plan on doing uh, this sermon in 1 Peter. We still have a few more, uh, but we'll give 1 Peter a pause for some um, Christmas sermons here in the next couple of weeks. But today, 1 Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. There, there are some things in life that, that just aren't meant to go together, but we just want to put them together anyway. We're, we're really stubborn, okay? So uh, one is Mentos and Coke. Have you ever seen Mentos and Coke? Well, I've given you an idea how to spend your afternoon. Go home and like Google, YouTube, Mentos and Coke, and you'll see what I mean. Mentos and Coke. Not meant to go together. I just leave it for you. you let's let your curiosity let you let you go. All right. Here's another one that that just aren't meant to go together, but we try to put them together anyway. Eggs and ketchup. Just disgusting. Why do you want to hurt yourself? I don't understand. They don't go together. And here's another one. They don't go together, but we try to do it anyway. Tuna with eggs, mayonnaise, and relish. I mean, what a horrid combination. It's awful, yes, no, no. The recipe for tuna salads needs to be wiped from people's brains, placed into a rocket ship, and sent to the sun to burn forever. Okay, I know, I'm, I know that sounds insane, but maybe y'all are the ones that are crazy, Okay. Well, when you're a toddler, or you're a parent of a toddler, you watch an inordinate amount of uh, Disney movies, and I watched Frozen for the first time. In fact, I watched Frozen 2 before I ever watched Frozen. I didn't even watch the whole movie of Frozen. Like, the, like we were watching Frozen, and, and then Willa, like, she went to bed or something. And, like, I wanted to keep watching it, but everybody else was like, let's watch something. I'm like, ah, I can't say it. I just want to keep watching. Anyway, uh, I love Olaf. You know, the snowman Olaf? And, and before I even ever saw Frozen, I liked him. Like, he just looked like a really funny little snowman. Uh, and one thing about Olaf being a snowman locked in this eternal winter is that he loves summer. He's never seen or experienced summer, but he says, anyway, he says this in the movie, oh, I don't know why, but I've always loved the idea of summer and sun and all things hot. It's funny because he loves the one thing that would absolutely destroy him. Olaf and Summer aren't meant to go together. Somehow, Olaf ends up being able to live in and enjoy the thing that could potentially destroy him forever. By the end of the movie, he lives in Summer, but they found a way to keep Olaf alive. I had to read about that part. I didn't get to finish the movie, so I had to go online and figure out what happened to Olaf. Suffering is one of those things that usually has the effect of destroying uh, and undoing and unraveling. Suffering and humans are incompatible. 
In the same way as Olaf the snowman and summer are incompatible, in the same way that eggs and ketchup are incompatible, right? Humans and suffering are incompatible. But what we learn in this last passage on suffering in 1 Peter is that suffering and the Christian are not incompatible. No, suffering is actually the Christian's companion. What would normally destroy us actually serves us. I I know at this point, many of our recent sermons have revolved around this topic of suffering. Peter has, has written extensively on suffering. But from everything we've learned about suffering, right? Think about back to chapter 2. We learned how to suffer to the glory of God. and how, We learned later on how we prepare for suffering. And we learned how we are secure in our suffering. And, and the last time I was in First Peter, where we learned how we're made alive to suffer. The reason we're born again is to suffer. And they all come down to this one conclusion. Suffering is the Christian's companion. contradictory it's paradoxical we're not quite sure always how to put them together but suffering is not our enemy suffering is our servant sent by our father himself suffering is designed to bring us good and and peter today in this passage he identifies three things that suffering should bring us and I'll, I want to find out what those are today. So let's read First Peter starting in chapter 4, verses, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay. First thing, suffering should bring not surprise, but assurance. Not surprise, but assurance. It, it makes sense at this point in 1 Peter that Peter can now write, Beloved, don't be surprised. Right, He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, at this point, at this point we know we're going to suffer, right? Has that, has that gotten across? I hope, I think, right? Yeah, we're going to suffer, okay. But I think Peter knows human nature and how quickly we forget this. When suffering comes, we tend to forget everything we've learned. Don't we? In fact, this word that he uses for for do not be surprised conveys this idea of of an unexpected visit from a stranger or or a a house guest. And when I was in seminary, uh, they had this program for women 
called Seminary Wives Institute. Mallory never did it because it just wasn't our thing, but apparently there was this test, okay, where the wife of the seminary, the seminary president, her name's Mary, would show up at your door unexpectedly, and you were expected to have your house clean, a snack ready, and conversation ready to go, just to be sure that you were ready to be a good host at any drop of the hat. We... Me and Mal thought that this was a little ridiculous. Uh, But that's the kind of idea that Peter has in mind with suffering. Like, don't be surprised when suffering springs upon you. Just like, be ready at any time Miss Mary is going to show up at your door, right? Be ready. Don't be surprised. Peter tells them exactly why they shouldn't be surprised. Why, Why not be surprised? When it comes upon you to what? To test you. To test you. It's really interesting here that Peter chooses that word fiery trial or uh, maybe some of your Bibles say fiery ordeal. That that language is really specific because it's meant to convey this idea of purifying and, and purification. In other words, these fiery trials are not like summer heat to Olaf that would just make him melt. These fiery trials won't destroy instead they are designed to strengthen and purify and sanctify that's that's the design of these trials peter reinvoit and reinforces this point at, at ver, in verse 13 let me get verse 13 but rejoice in so far as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed so so get this Not only are these fiery trials meant for purification, they are meant for preparation. What I mean is this. The purification that is supposed to take place in trials now are preparing you for joy later when Christ comes. Notice that I said supposed to, right? These, these trials are supposed to purify you because it's not just any kind of suffering that does this, right? Not just any kind of suffering purifies you and prepares you, all right? The first qualification, there's two here, right? Look at uh, verse 13. The first qualification, qualification is that insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We'll look at what a little bit about that means later, but... This suffering is specifically because of our allegiance to Christ. It does not refer to suffering because of consequences of foolish or sinful actions. Right? This, the suffering that purifies and prepares is suffering that shares in Christ's suffering. Okay? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But second, second, it's rejoicing in our sufferings now. That prepare you, prepares you for joy later. This second qualifies not just to this kind of suffering that he's talking about, but, but all kinds, right? A disease, calamity, catastrophe, infertility, death. We're called to rejoice in all of them. Sorry for the speaker. It's not going to fix it. All right. Peter's language is very clear here, guys. 
how we respond to suffering is an indication of whether we belong to God. Worldly and fleshly reactions to suffering include pouting and self-pity, bitterness, resisting, fighting back, getting angry. But the unique Christian response to suffering is joy. Rejoice now so that you will rejoice when His glory is revealed. Negatively, how to say this in a negative sense is to say, if you don't rejoice now, don't expect to rejoice when Christ comes. Peter goes on to add one more thing. We rejoice now, not only to rejoice later, but look, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I mean, this Peter is basically quoting Jesus here, who said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Listen, what this means is that believers should not be surprised, but assured. Sufferings are not signs of God's absence. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. They are signs of His favor. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us to endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as sons. So suffering should not bring surprise. Like, oh no, it should bring assurance. Peter takes up this theme of glory in verses 15 and 16. And this brings us to our next point. Suffering should bring not shame, but glory. Not shame, glory. Peter brings up a point we've seen over and over. Look at verse 15. Okay? You're insulted in the name of Christ, you're blessed, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. I, I, I want to get to the specifics of what those mean here in just a minute. But I want to pause on one idea just for the moment. And that is to never simply assume your suffering is Christ following suffering. Don't assume that just because you're suffering, it's, it's a Christ following suffering. Mark Driscoll was once a prominent and influential pastor. I, I, I loved Mark Driscoll back in the day. But it became clear that, that he had sinful behavior, right? He was, he was abusive and domineering and arrogant. And when it came that, to the decision that the elders made, right, that he should take a leave of absence for, for restoration and therapy, that kind of stuff, he instead claimed that God told him that it was all this malicious trap and that he should quit and go into ministry somewhere else. And he's still in ministry today. And, and what, what he did is instead of seeing the just consequences of his sin, he rationalized it as suffering for Christ, basically. 
And that's his, I, I look on his life as a warning sign for me, and it should be for all of us, because all of us can do this. All of us somehow rationalize consequences for sin or whatever as though we're suffering for Jesus. And you know why we do this? Why we so badly want to see our suffering as godly instead of the result of a consequence? It's because we don't want to do the hard work of repentance and instead hide behind our own self-righteousness as if we haven't really messed up that bad. And Peter here lists a few ways, right, that we can suffer for evil, all right? And, and first, he, he lists three kind of different categories. First, he lists murderers and thieves. It's not likely that in his church or in this church there's murderers and thieves in the pews. I mean, I, I can picture a few of you as murderers. You know, it's not, not that hard to imagine. But, but uh, don't suffer for doing something blatantly wrong or like criminal behavior. Because that's not Christ-like suffering. I mean, guys, like just this week, there's this Christian I knew. I knew this guy. You, saw, you probably saw it in the news. He got arrested for like embezzling all this money and, and like faking people's identities to get loans. Like, that's not Christ-like suffering, dude. Don't do that, okay? Don't suffer that way. But second, second he lists, don't suffer as, as an evildoer. All right, that's just a generic term. May or may not be criminal, but it, it means that just don't, do, don't suffer for doing wrong in general. So, so here's something that I see. I see guys do this all the time. Rawr, social media, I'm hammering social media again. Get used to it, okay? I, I asked for a phone for Christmas that I can't have any apps on just so that I don't have to check social media anymore. I'm an old man, and I'm excited. Really excited, okay? But anyway, I see a lot of guys, they will say something like really provocative. And, and, and the intent is to get people angry. And when people do get angry, they're like, oh, it looks like I you know, triggered somebody. It's like, dude, you... What do you expect? You post something crazy and you get crazy responses. That's not Christ-like suffering. It's not suffering if you provoke people, if your aim is to make people angry. Like, it's not suffering if your spouse or your kids won't listen to you or rebel against you if you're just belligerent and violent. Alright, that's, that's this kind of evil doing just in general. But I love this last one. All right, maybe, maybe some of us imagine, okay, we don't fall into that category. But he, he doesn't let any of us off the hook. The final thing he lists is meddlers. I love this. You might not be a murderer. You might not be a thief. You might not be doing wrong. But you can certainly annoy others so much that they shun you or ostracize you. That might feel like suffering for Christ, but really it's because you're just not pleasant to be around. Don't mistake that kind of behavior for actually suffering for, suffering for Christ. It's like, it's like you're the Grinch, but you don't know why nobody wants to be around you. And you just assume, oh, it's because I'm too Christian. Look, just look in the mirror, alright? Long look in the mirror. Hey, don't suffer like this. Rather, verse 16, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in that name. If you suffer for sin and wrongdoing, you should be ashamed. You should be shamed into repentance. But if you suffer because your life and your words and and repentance are consistent with Christ, you should absolutely not be ashamed. I mean, think about it. What if acting like and following Christ means you are rejected by your family? Picture picture your closest family right now. (laughs) Imagine your kids refusing to see you or you not being able to see your grandkids or great-grandkids. Or what if you were shunned by your parents and degraded by them? Can, Can you feel the temptation to doubt whether it's all truly worth it? Peter says, no, don't be ashamed, but, but glory. Glory is the polar opposite of shame. Shame involves giving up and pulling back, but glory involves exulting in triumph. But here's the thing, we don't glory in ourselves and how well we're doing or how good we are. We don't even glory in our sufferings. Instead, we glorify God in that name. In other words, it's more of a praise God that I'm counted worthy to share in these kinds of sufferings. It's the same thing that we see in Acts 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So Christ-like suffering should not cause us to retreat. It should cause us to glorify our God. There's a sign at a church on Ingram Mill, right off Sunshine right now. I drive past it all the time, and it says, count your blessings, or see how many blessings you can count between here and Battlefield. You're driving south. That's not bad. Scripture would say, count your sufferings for Christ, too. Charles Spurgeon modeled this attitude when he said, I learned to kiss the wave that threw me against the rock of ages. Not shame, but glory. Finally, our suffering should bring not fear, but rest. Not fear, but rest. I don't know how much I've talked about this with you guys. It's not really a part of my life that I like to talk about a lot. I used to sell ladies' shoes. Not... Like the fashionable shoes, right? But like the comfort shoes. The, the shoes that you end up wearing because for your whole life you wore the fashionable shoes. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know. I, I've seen some crazy bunions. I see some nasty feet. And I try to put them in the most comfortable shoes possible. Okay? But it always bewildered me that, that there was never like an in-between of the mall being dead and it being crazy busy. Like there was never just like this steady stream of like customers or whatever. It was either like dead or just slammed, packed. I could never figure it out. It's like everybody's on the same wavelength. Why did we have to get so many at, at, at one time? I think we can wonder about suffering like that. Like why all this concentrated suffering? 
why must so much happen and, and so much suffering happen to Christians? Why all of this focus on suffering? Peter answers that in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Listen, the, the central foundational reason that suffering is such a focused and concentrated part of being a Christian is because of judgment. In other words, it's by God's design. Like, that means before it's humans causing the suffering, before it's Satan and his demons causing the suffering, God is behind, He's sovereign over all of it. Now don't hear me wrongly. The judgment of the household of God is not punishment. This is, when it says judgment here of the household of God, it's not a, a punishing judgment. This, it's a, the judgment is exactly what we saw in verse 12. It's, it's a purifying and sanctifying judgment. It's a judgment that's meant to bring purity and character and, and sanctification to his people. Tom Schreiner, a commentator that I read, First Peter, he wrote that the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God. And that purification comes through suffering, making believers morally fit for their inheritance. So judgment. But Peter is trying to stress an additional point here. If believers are to go through judgment for their purification, then what will judgment mean for unbelievers? Verse 17 again. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? There's a couple of things that I need to point out here. First, this expression, obey the gospel of God, or as he says here, those who do not obey the gospel of God, it's a favorite of, of Peter's. Peter loves the expression, obedience to the gospel, or obeying the gospel. This is because salvation doesn't involve just belief. It involves obedience. Okay? In other words, true belief will always lead to obedience, whereas unbelief, will always lead to disobedience. You follow? Second, Peter quotes Proverbs uh, chapter 11 here, and he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. That's, right, this is where kind of interpretation comes in, but that word scarcely is actually better interpreted as like with difficulty. So to stress, to stress in other words, that following Christ is Difficult. That's what we've been saying all along, right? If you, want to suffer, if you want to follow Christ and rejoice at His coming, this means you're going to suffer. Sorry, Joel Osteen, not every day is a Friday. And if suffering is difficult now, how much worse will it be for those who wait? In other words, listen, if following Christ leads to such hardship, what will become of those who reject Him? 
Peter's arguing from the lesser to the greater here. Instead, last verse here, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, like we've seen, that means as a Christian, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter chose, right, this uh, title, faithful creator, very intentionally. Because it means that nothing can come to the believer apart from the loving selection of their sovereign God. Nothing. In fact, everything that comes to you is part of His wise and loving sovereign care. Nothing comes to you apart from His faithful sovereign care. Nothing. And when you're entrusting you're resting. That's where I get the phrase for this last point. Back when I used to have like really, really, really deep doubts about my salvation, I, I ha- also had this great fear of condemnation. I, I, I can't describe to you the amount of fear I would feel on a daily basis that I was condemned forever. And the one thing that prevented me from doing was sleeping. That's what fear and anxiety do. They, they keep you from resting. No, we don't fear, we entrust. We entrust. Our focus isn't on ourselves or how good we can do. It's on how deeply loving and tender our faithful God is. That's what leads to trust. That's that's where my rest ended up coming from. Not looking at myself, because every time I look at myself, all I see is worthy of condemnation, and that's all I'll ever see. That's all I should see. The rest comes from always looking at faithful, tender, mercy, God. And because of that, we continue to do good. Suffering should bring not fear, not as if we're being punished, not as if God is distant from us, not not as though God is pushing us away, Not fear, but rest. Rest. It's paradoxical, isn't it? Suffering isn't an occasion for surprise, but for assurance, security. It's not an occasion for shame, but but for glory. It's not an occasion for fear, but for rest. And this is truly an impossible task. We're called, we're being called to do something that we simply cannot do in our own power. But here's here's the good news. God never calls us to do anything that He will also not give us the grace to complete. He never allows suffering that He will also not give you the grace to endure. He's not calling you to do something to do it on your own and just pull yourselves up by your bootstrap and to just hang in there. No, He calls you to do something that He supplies the grace to accomplish. And this means that from beginning, middle to end, God is holding us, God is helping us, and He's sustaining us. 
We don't do any of it on our own. We hardly do any of it with our own power. Right? I don't want to minimize our responsibility. Right? It is our responsibility to suffer well. But the ability to suffer well comes from God. It doesn't come from us. So, so we can say, let suffering come. Not because somehow suffering is our joy, but God is our joy and we rest in His sovereign care and mercy. God, if, if suffering is what you have for me, then I know you have that much more grace. That much more faithfulness. And, and on top of that, He's not calling us to do anything He has not already accomplished. Because suffering doesn't separate you from Him. Suffering feels that way, but suffering doesn't separate you from Him because you are already eternally connected to Him. Already eternally in union with Him. Suffering, right, though it sanctifies us, it doesn't make you more righteous. Because you're already perfectly righteous in Christ. Your righteousness is perfect. There's nothing you can add to it. And you can't take it away. You don't suffer to make God love you more. Right? If you have sin in your life, right? He already loves you perfectly in Christ. Your failing in suffering doesn't condemn you. Christ has already covered your failures. So not only does He supply everything that we need to do, He has already accomplished everything for us. The Gospel is endlessly good. And if you are a Christian, run to Christ every day. Not, not just to ask for forgiveness, but to rest. Rest in His work. There are so many times when I run to Christ and I, I pray for forgiveness and I pray for forgiveness, but I don't rest in the fact that He's already forgiven me. I don't rest in His work for me. So run to Christ every day. And if you are not a Christian, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Because... The judgment that waits for you is nothing compared to the suffering that God calls us to now. He, the good news is this. That he will receive you. And you will find that His burden is light. And that you will find rest for your souls. Let's go to Him this morning. Lord Jesus, following you is such a paradox. Because we're already righteous. Lord, if, we're, if we trust in you, we're perfectly righteous. We can't grow more holy to make you love us more. And we can't outsin our righteousness. We're, we're free. We're already counted free from sin we bear no condemnation we are righteous accepted and yet 
And yet, it doesn't mean we go and live how we please. It means that there's work to be done. Sanctification to happen. Purification. And it's because we are righteous that we suffer. It's a paradox. Lord Jesus, we ask for Your help in suffering. We ask that we would not be surprised, but that we would be assured. We ask that we would not be ashamed, but that we would glorify You. We ask that we would not fear, but rest. Because all of it comes from Your hand because You already love us. May we people, may we be a people who suffer in all these ways that you called us to because we are different, because we are called out. Because we have a Savior who gives us all that we need and has already done everything for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.